Hello, I'm Chris. And I'm Sean. And this is Monsters and Mythos, a podcast where we take a look at the monsters and races of Dungeons and Dragons and compare them to their folklore and mythological counterparts. Today we are looking at the vampire. Yes, from the Count of Sesame Street to the sparkly guys of the Twilight series, vampires have definitely been around and had a huge part in the many a nightmare of the average person. Oh yes, our evil, blood-sucking enemies, charming and majestic, yet also silent death and much more. Plenty of uh, good talking points on another iconic enemy, the vampire. Yes, so... As always, we will start with the uh, variant D&D aspects of it before we jump into the folklore. And then we'll see how, once we both learned a little bit of both aspects, how you might be able to combine the folklore with the D&D to make a truly epic creature. All right. So, well, that being said, let's... Let's start with a few uh, descriptors of the D&D uh, version of the vampire. While, while some of the standard descriptors apply, red eyes, pointed teeth, a gaunt complexion, uh, the vampires across the realms look very different sometimes. Uh, this being to, due to the vampire not only being a, a standalone creature, but also a template or something you can apply to an already existing creature or character. Uh, that being said, the possibilities of races that could be turned into vampires are many. Uh, things like red eyes and sharp teeth and, and a gaunt complexion might not be out of place amongst certain communities of playable races. You know, dragonborn and tieflings come to mind, to name a few. <clears throat> so, it's actually quite hard to say what the average vampire is supposed to look like within the... Uh, ever-evolving realms of the many D&D universes. So, um, that being said, so, uh, you know, essentially the red eyes, the long, uh, elongated fangs, and the gaunt complexion is applying to, obviously, to the more humanoid uh, um, races, but, uh, uh, you know, can can be applied to, to others as well in, in just different ways. Uh, so, what... What people really want to know about vampires in D&D is, is what they are capable of. What are their powers? What are their weaknesses? You know, well, well first let's talk about the uh, infamous vampire lair, uh, wherever they choose to make it. The creature's presence tends to warp the surrounding region, uh, whether an unnatural dense fog or uh, some withering vegetation or an up and pests like the uh, local bat or rat population or some other eerie side effect uh, uh, these vampires they require a coffin for rest and occasionally regeneration if their physical bodies are destroyed returning in a mist form if uh, in this case if this is possible and regenerating should they be slain while uh, going about their exploits uh, vampires in D&D are considered shape changers. Not indefinitely, nor any shape they want, but they can become either a tiny bat or a medium cloud of mist at will, which is very useful for many things. Travel, stealth, 
gaining entrance to uh, various places. Aside from a few uh, legendary resistances and its misty escape ability, uh, should it be reduced to zero hit points in-game. Uh, count regeneration amongst its abilities, regenerating hit points very quickly, uh, particularly uh, every round in battle, that the vampire does not take radiant damage nor uh, suffer any damage from things like holy water. Uh, spider climbing is a uh, widely known uh, vampire trait in Dungeons and Dragons. Vampires can climb different difficult surfaces, including uh, you know upside down upon ceilings. Uh, the ability to call bats, rats, or even wolves to aid them while out in the nature and doing their bidding, uh, committing their dastardly deeds, is is also a, a, a an ability that seems to have traversed several editions. Um, you combined all that with some lethal claws and fangs, alongside the ability to charm any of those people, any any humanoids nearby, to regard them as trusted, uh, a trusted friend to be heeded and protected. You know, um, this is easily a top-notch and lethal predator. <laughs> it does have weaknesses, though. Uh, however, crosses and garlic don't seem to hold up. Uh, forbidden from entering residences without permission from its occupants is one thing that I, I still find interesting. I think that's good. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know where that lore was based at. Maybe you took, covered it, but that's like a, a classic as far as vampires go, you know? Um, also running or uh, flowing water to a vampire is like acid to the other races. And, uh, vampires, uh, stereotypically have some sort of, uh, um, hypersensitivity to sunlight and uh, as with most creatures a wooden stake to the heart uh, while it's resting or regenerating within their coffin spells their doom but you know a, a spiky stab to the heart spells most creatures doom so I don't know if I can take a whole lot of credit for that uh, I'm probably gonna have to move on to some of the variants now but uh, before I start diving into those, uh, is the vampire in D&D anything like the vampires you have looked up in the lore? <laughs> well, the thing is, I think the vampire is so iconic, it's almost impossible to not have it sound similar. There are a few variations. I mean, you already touched upon the garlic thing, uh, but there's a lot of similarities to them. Yeah, I figured. I figured it, it, lots of this sounded familiar, so it's it's got to be coming from somewhere. Maybe maybe your your dive into the lore will explain some of it. But <laughs> um, so I'm kind of looking into some different variants of the vampire, which is uh, kind of difficult because there's not a whole lot. I mean, like I said, uh, um, with a template, uh, you can uh, you can make a real good run at an awesome custom character you know you can already make a great you know character of whatever level in whatever class and then apply this vampire template to it which alters it a bit but um you know it it's basically customization at its finest if you're trying to create a big bad evil guy or a or a, just some some nemesis for for your foes here but uh so let's talk about a couple of the variants of vampire the uh vampire spawn are uh, created by a vampire biting and draining the blood of a living creature. Uh, after the victim dies, they will rise again as a vampire spawn under the control of their creator. You know, 
and so this is kind of how vampires are known to like spread their not only their wealth but their influence their power you know to uh, get uh, uh, dozens upon dozens of people who are subservient to them or maybe one person in particular who's uh, you know maybe a political figure or a leader of some sort to be subservient to their to their whims things um another uh a variant which uh, you had kind of turned me on to was the uh dampiers uh you know dampiers on the other hand are the offspring of a vampire and a human they they are usually born as half breeds but there are cases where they can be transformed into full vampires which brings us all the way back around to our pilot episode on humans where we briefly talked about slut folking now correct me if i'm wrong but a vampire is technically undead so in order for this uh this dampier to to come into existence there's got to be somebody somewhere with a, a touch of necrophilia throughout the realms which is which is kind of wrong on a lot of levels so i mean a lot of the vampire stories end up with a tinge of necrophilia I think but, I think I, I mean, with a vampire's perspective, like it should be, is it necrophilia to them if they're undead and we're like living? Like, there's got to be like a weird, like uh, a, a a pulse fucker or something. I don't know <laughs> what it would be called. But... <laughs> anyway, um, so let's see where was I? Oh yeah. So, um, vampire spawn and dampiers are, share many of the same powers and abilities as uh, traditional vampires, but there are some differences. Uh, uh, vampire spawns, you still have the uh, ability to regenerate quickly from uh, most injuries they receive. They still feed, similar to the vampires. They can do the spider climbing thing, and, and they also pro uh, uh, possess some dark vision, uh, immune to things like charm and whatnot. They do have the similar uh, vulnerabilities as well. Sunlight, running water, etc. Dampiers have many of the same abilities as vampires, but their weaknesses are not so pronounced. You know, possessing dark vision and, and greater resistances to like the charm effect. Immune to things like uh, you know, sleep or, and, and whatnot. But both uh, vampire spawn and dampiers have similar descriptors. You know, pale skin, fangs, elongated ears... Though uh, dampiers are uh, rumored to look uh, more human than these uh, uh, vampire spawn. And also their clothing. It seems that uh, the vampire spawn uh, often wear antiquated clothing from the time they were turned. While dampiers tend to dress more contemporarily, uh, uh, at least amongst the realms, as far as D&D uh, is concerned. But uh, aside from that, you know... Uh, uh, templates are just fun to tinker with, man. You know, it gives you a great uh, option for customization. You know, what kind of character do you want to create? What kind of uh, game mechanics do you want to employ? Like, the templates are a little extra dose of fun. Something beyond uh, class, race, and level. Uh, yeah, class, race, and level. You know, something uh, a little, a little fine tune, a little, a little spice on the on the character sheet. Uh, but uh, aside from that, that's about all I've got on the uh, vampire as far as D&D is concerned. Uh, what did you look up? So as I said, a vampire lore is extensive. There's a lot that just could not be added 
and I guarantee there are vampire podcasts that are, could go on for years. And that's definitely not our intent. Uh, so let's take a look at the vampire from a folklore aspect. Vampires are undead creatures that survive by taking life-essential substances from living organisms. This is typically blood, but can also be a person's life energy. So not all vampires drink blood, some of them steal your life through an external force. Uh, vampires, or vampire-type creatures, have persisted in cultures throughout the world and time. Though not human, ancient Mesopotamians and Greeks had figures that would drain blood from people. In ancient Babylonia, they had a creature called the Lilithu, which these were a female demon that would take the blood of babies. And so this was probably used as an explanation as to why some babies died early from something such as SIDS. They didn't know what that was. Uh, Lilithu came and drained the baby's life. Uh, the Lilithu was actually then turned into Lilith, who was found in Hebrew text as the first wife of Adam. After she left Eden for not being submissive to Adam, she then roamed the earth as a demon that would live off the babies of Adam and Eve as revenge. And looking at her tale a little, I actually discovered that in the third edition of D&D, they have a stat block for the monster called the Lilithu. So you can already bring that in, make the few variations to 5e if that's what you're playing, and have an entire new story already right there. Uh, in ancient Greece, you had the Strix, which were large-headed birds that fed on human flesh and blood. You also had the Impusa, which was a de demonic phantom that has one leg and would seduce young men while sleeping and drink their blood and eat their flesh. I wonder if she seduced them by saying, Hey, I can't run away. I only have one leg. And if so, well, then I'm happy for her because those guys deserve to be killed anyway. <laughs> Sounds like she murdered a bunch of creepers, dude. <laughs> and I'm all for it. Uh, Go ahead. And then, <laughs> and then lastly, there's the Lamia, which was a woman made half-snake by Hera after she slept with Zeus. So again, here you see Hera transforming people because they pissed her off. Uh, can't, can't, uh, get mad at Zeus and punish him, so take it out on the mortal who can't say no. As I mean, the... I mean, can we get mad at... I mean, the Greek gods seem to sleep or, or genocide their way into our our episodes one way or the other. <laughs> yep, you cannot get past uh, Greek gods or Roman gods, really in almost any respect. Uh, except unless you get into the Fae, then you could get into the Norse. But I mean, yeah, they're everywhere. Uh, but as part of as part of the punishment of Lamia, Hera got rid of her children, either by killing them or stealing them, which drove Lamia insane. And so, in return, she would capture any children she could find, devour them, or at least drink their blood. 
So while there have always been blood drinking creatures, they were typically monsters or demons or spirits. The idea of it being an undead human didn't become popularized until roughly the 18th century. So how did a person become a vampire? In some cultures, it was the body of a suicide victim, an evil person, a witch, or even as simple as having a cat jump over the grave. A vampire was a body returned from the dead that would begin by eating its burial shroud. Uh, they were described as being bloated and, you know, definitely wouldn't make for a great romance type character. Now, I don't think... Uh, interview with the vampire or the twilight series would sell as well if you had a bloated grungy looking vampire a sparkly uh, ron jeremy on the beach <laughs> exactly uh, after doing this they would begin after eating the burial shroud they'd begin to dig themselves out of their grave where they would begin to wreak havoc on the community vampires had the ability to shapeshift into things such as animals so bats wolves um in some stories they could even control animals so you see that carrying over to the dnd stat blocks they had superhuman strength and speed this would allow them to attack without being damaged uh, but not all vampires drink blood. As I said, some of them just lived off different, uh, life energies. Uh, some, such as the Upir of Russia and Ukraine, could drain a person's life force by just looking at them or touching them. So they didn't have to bite you. All they had to do was look at you and you start to get sick and die. Problems would arise in the community. And these would include all sorts of ill circumstances such as cow's milk going bad, crops failing, sickness, and death. The first people that the vampire would attack would be his family. So if somebody died and their family started getting sick, they would think, hey, maybe the person we just buried is a vampire. And so... Once he finished off the family, the vampire would move on to others in the community. Once these effects began to take place, the townspeople would dig up recently buried corpses until they found one where there were signs that the corpse was a vampire. These signs would include a bloated body, blood around the mouth, longer hair or nails, or essentially just not looking as far into decomposition as the townspeople would expect. If they found such a corpse, the next step was to kill the vampire. This was typically done by chopping off the head or driving a stake through it so that it could not get out of the coffin. I mean, you're talking a two-foot stake. Not a little six-inch, not just running to the heart. That thing went straight through your chest, all the way through your back, so that you were stuck in your coffin. Uh, some traditions have had that repeating a funeral service or sprinkling it with holy water would destroy a vampire. There are also preventative measures that could be taken if a corpse was suspected that it could become a vampire. This included burying a body upside down, so that if it started digging, then it would dig further into the ground rather than towards the surface. Uh, sometimes an item such as a brick would be put in the mouth, so that the vampire would be unable to eat the burial shroud and be stuck. 
and sometimes they would decapitate the head from the get-go and bury it by the feet or behind the body. Coffins are still dug up today where the head is down by the feet and all you have is a skeleton like that. Sometimes there's a rock or a brick in the mouth. Uh, in fact, some corpses would be buried with a sickle just over the throat. So when the vampire would try to rise from the ground, it would decapitate itself. A nice little uh, self-defense system. A person could also protect themselves from vampires with garlic, uh, which contained many purifying traits to the ancient world, so it was a very much a cleanser of the time. And that's why still today in all of the lore, garlic has an impact. Uh, you could drop things such as rice, which a vampire is compelled to count all before he could move on. So again, here you see another evil creature that is compelled to count. Uh, you can distract it with a mirror, which has twofold, since in some beliefs the mirror reflects the soul of a person, and since a vampire has no soul, it has no reflection. And also because mirrors are made of, with silver in it, which is considered a pure metal and thus effective against evil beings. Uh, and running water was a way to delay a uh, vampire as well. So if you're being chased, get across the river and that'll slow it down until it figures a way to get across. So where did vampires come from? For millennia, germ theory and many of the diseases that we recognize were unknown. One thought is that people would contract porphyria, and those symptoms would explain the curse. Uh, in fact, cutaneous porphyria symptoms does include sensitivity to the sun. The problem was that with this is that in most older vampire lore, while they did hunt at night, vampires were not sensitive or weakened by the sun. The vampire being killed by the sun aspect came about in the film Nosferatu. So here we see Hollywood having an impact on lore. During the climax of the film, when determining how to kill off the vampire, it was decided to use the sun since there are many tales about creatures being killed by sunlight. So prior to that, a vampire could be in the sun, although if people saw it walking around during the day like, hey, you're dead. He would die that much quicker, so he might wait till night. <laughs> but the sunlight wouldn't kill it. Uh, most of those tales involve uh, fey creatures, however, uh, in terms of being affected by sunlight. And what it would do is it would turn them into stone rather than kill them. Tell, I believe it's of goblins playing a game against trolls and they didn't want to stop and as the sun came up they all got turned to stone. Um, another aspect of vampire lore and how it may have came about is that they did not know how bodies decomposed. While of course it's decomposing it becomes bloated in the early stages. This is a result of gases being released. The body will then deflate and become more emaciated looking. Blood pulling around the mouth is not an uncommon occurrence during uh, death and decomposition. So it's not surprising you would find blood on a recently uh, dead corpse. Even today, many will claim that hair and nails continue to grow after death, even though this is not true. 
I said what is happening is that the skin is pulling away and revealing more of the nail and hair roots that would normally be covered by a well-hydrated body. Well, what about entire families getting sick? This is more of a product of a single family member getting sick and then spreading it to the other family members. Tuberculosis is called a wasting disease because a person's body begins to shrivel away while sick. It is highly contagious to the point where it's one of the few diseases that if you tested positive for, treatment will be forced on you. They will hunt you down and force you to get a tuberculosis treatment because it can spread so easily. And so if you had one member of the family with it and was in constant close contact with the others, then even after that initially infected person died, it would start to look as though other families were being drained because they contracted the disease. And this is the very event that occurred in Rhode Island in the late 1800s. There was a woman named Mercy Brown who contracted tuberculosis and died. Other members of her family contracted it and either died or became ill-looking. While looking for a culprit, they ended up opening Mercy Brown's grave and found her in relative good shape for a body that had been dead for months. This ignored that the reason the body would have looked good is because she was entombed in winter in an above-ground vault. And if you don't know how cold winter in the New England area could be, I mean, we have a couple people who live up in Maine we could ask and Basically, she was put into a freezer, and that would just vastly slow down her body's decay. But instead of this rational uh, result, they decided she was a vampire, cut out her heart, burned it, and had her sick brother ingest the ashes. They believed that this would cure him of the vampirism disease. It did not. He died from tuberculosis later. Uh, but vampires and vampire-like creatures are found worldwide. In Albania, they are called the Striga. In Romania, they are known as the Strogoi. Germany has a Nosferatu, which are the ones that are more ugly looking. They have long fangs, pointy ears, and that dead look. Definitely not the uh, handsome sweep you off your feet that Anne Rice really portrayed in an interview with the vampire. They also have a weakness to the sun. It can only come out at night. Now to get more international, in the Philippines, you have the Mananangal. And that's M-A-N-A-N-A-N-G-G-A-L. <laughs> this is typically a female entity that looks human during the day. When night falls, she detaches her torso from her lower half and then grows bat wings so she can fly. She will perch on rooftops and with a long tongue, pierce the womb of a pregnant woman and suck out the fetus. Again, another way to describe uh, possible miscarriage or SIDS. Uh, if a fetus is not available, she will seduce men with her beauty and then lure them to a private location before eating them alive. She typically feeds on the insides, such as the heart, stomach, or liver. Doesn't that just sound special? That's out. That's, that's, that's awful. <laughs> uh, then the only way to stop her is to prevent her torso and body, 
bottom half from reattaching at sunrise. This can be done by moving the lower half to where she can't find it, or covering the lower body with ash, salt, or garlic so that she cannot reattach herself. Uh, next, you have the Jiangxi, which some may consider more of a zombie than a vampire. Uh, this is a Chinese variation where the body comes back to life and feeds off the chi of a person. So again, we're getting to not blood, but a life force, the chi, which is very prominent in Chinese culture. They are typically described as having white skin with green mold or fungus growing off of it. The longer a body has been dead, the more deteriorated it looks. Uh, these are raised by a necromancer or are a body where the spirit cannot leave where a spirit cannot leave the body due to sometimes being a suicide or unfinished business or some other reason. Uh, these ones though are blind, so if they're chasing you, you can hold your breath and just hope they pass so that you don't die. In Africa, you have the Asan Basam, which is a figure that has pink skin, long red hair, iron teeth, and iron hooks for feet. It lives in the trees and attacks people from above. This one is also closely associated with the ogre due to being hairy with bloodshot eyes. Uh, one of the more interesting types is the Dampir, which as you said, uh, showed up and became a playable race in the Von Richten's Guide to the Ravenloft sourcebook and may not be as well known. Uh, and just like in the uh, stat block, they are the offspring of a vampiric father and human mother because they didn't understand what sperm were and that they're living cells. So, chances are, if the vampire is dead, his sperm is dead. Those swimmers aren't going anywhere. Uh, though vampires are considered evil, vampires are actually considered to be good and are heroes in their own right. They show up in Balkan's lore and are vampire hunters with some of the superhuman powers that a vampire has. So, in that way, they're very much like what they are in the D&D uh, &D books. And I would love to play a Dampier in a Curse of Strahd. I think that would be a perfect uh, matchup right there. Now, as we're discussing vampires, we cannot discuss them without talking about the most popular vampire. That's right. We're going to discuss the Count from Sesame Street. I was no. going to go Count Chocula, but okay. <laughs> But but there's that interesting thing. So the Count in Sesame Street counts. So did they do that just because he was the Count, you know, named after Count Dracula? Or is it because they knew vampires had a compulsion to count, and so he has to count? Like, did they big brain it, or did they just get lucky? <laughs> oh, I'm going to say they rolled the dice and got lucky, but possible, possible. <laughs> But with vampires, yeah, you can't discuss vampires without discussing Dracula. Definitely the most famous vampire to have ever existed, created by Bram Stoker. Uh, a lot of people believe, and it, probably because it was put out in a book in the 1970s, I believe, 1970s or 1980s, that he based Dracula off the real 
Vlad the Impaler or Count Dracula of Transylvania. Well, the name Dracula or Dracula comes from uh, his father being known as Dracul, which means dragon or devil, and him being the son of, he got the name Dracula. However, there's not a lot of good supporting evidence of this. Yes, Vladimir Paler was real. Yes, he one time put his enemies on wooden stakes. However, he did that to enemy soldiers in front of the enemy army. Like, hey, you come attack us, this is what you're going to get. There's tales of him drinking blood straight from the bodies while dining amongst them, but there's no real evidence for that. Just, you know, a lot of stories about him because he played both sides. He uh, fought for the Christians and he fought for the Ottomans, depending on which way the wind was blowing. <laughs> it really seemed like. Uh, and he just had that pivotal land, so really he just got... Uh, lambasted in the press basically it is believed that some of those stories may have came from uh, a woman named elizabeth bathory who was in i want to say hungry and she had stories about how she would bathe in the blood of virgins in order to look young problem with this is that it also is a lot of lies made up by a king who just wanted her money and land <laughs> And chances are, Bram Stoker knew absolutely nothing about uh, Dracula or Vlad the Impaler besides his name, as he never went to Transylvania. And so he never heard the stories, never listened to the folk tales from the actual villagers. Instead, he may have based Dracula on an Irish chieftain, because Bram Stoker is Irish. There was an ancient chieftain who was a dwarf, but it was said that he was such a tyrant, his peasants decided to revolt against him. And with the aid of a rival chief, they killed him, buried him. And the next day he was back creating more bloodshed. So they killed him again and buried him. And again, he came back. <laughs> So they're like, how the hell is this guy coming back? We're killing him and he's just reforming and coming back alive. While the enemy chieftain ended up stabbing him through the heart with a wooden sword. Stick to the heart. He was then buried in a coffin upside down. Following vampire folktales. A, then a large stone was placed upon his coffin. So that he couldn't get out. And he was never seen after that day. So there's a really good chance Bram Stoker took Dracula from an ancient Irish chieftain. And then just gave it the name of Dracula after Vlad the Impaler. And I mean, that was just really fun to find. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed reading the, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was actually a really good book. <laughs> So, vampires in real life. Uh, there is one famous one. 
the Sacramento vampire known as Richard Chase. He honestly believed that he had to drink blood of others in order to live, and if he came to a door that was locked, he assumed he wasn't invited. If it was unlocked, he was being invited in. And he even killed a baby. Um, so, good riddance to him. But there are people who would consider themselves vampires. Apparently there's uh, sanguine vampires where people honestly drink bits of blood, of human blood, uh, not a lot, just a few drops, but they'll mix it in with something and drink it down because they have to to live. Or they're psychic vampires where they feed off your energy. And I've been around people and a lot of them feed off my energy, so there must be a lot of psychic vampires out there, but... There are people that will consider themselves a real-life vampire. <laughs> so, I don't was... care what they identify as, but if they bite me, it's on. <laughs> oh, exactly. Uh, so that's what I really have for vampires. I mean, there's still, like I said, there's a lot of information out there. And that was a decent dump for the length of what we keep our show at. But you could do entire episodes on just each of those variants. You know, the how would you deal with this in this culture? Okay, now let's change it for that one. Uh, so what changes could be made from the D&D vampire to bring in some of the folklore elements? Well, one, get rid of the sensitivity to sunlight. That's already going to bump up that CR rating by... Gotta be at least three or four points. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, like I said, a lot of it is the same, but the different vampire types in other cultures would be just amazing to bring in. The Mananananagal. That was the one I was going to ask you about. <laughs> <laughs> like... You have that horny bard character. If you have one of those types of players where they like to hit on everybody, give him one of those. You know, forget the succubus. Bring in this one. Then they go off to a secret corner, and you can give that description of the body just breaking apart in half as she goes to eat his guts. Right? And, uh, I, one thing I think about uh, the D&D descriptors of the vampire is like, like kind of how I had said before is like some, uh, you know, now that there's a lot more playable, playable races, some races out there, you know, maybe a, a bit of a pale or gaunt complexion and sharp teeth. You know, might not be out of the norm. So I think uh, I, I like, you know, different ways of being able to point out different descriptors of, you know, how other vampires would look. Because, like, I mean, if you take a, say, like a red dragonborn and then you apply the vampire template to it, just, just descriptors-wise. So it just becomes a slightly less red dragonborn, you know. So the, the gauntness is kind of hard to describe, I guess, unless you're, like... 
vividly describing several different shades of red you know but i mean it's possible it's doable but at the same time you know sharp teeth is probably a common trait amongst dragonborn and you know various colored eyes you know as well so it's like i was kind of paying more attention to like some of the cool descriptors as you were going through the different uh, variants and things just something uh, out of the normal that uh, goes above and beyond like uh just uh pale or or sharp teeth like like the nosferatu type of vampire being being particularly uh ugly you know what i mean like uh those kind of descriptors i think uh would kind of help as the uh playable races kind of uh continues to be more inclusive and grow and grow and grow uh the standard you know vampire i'm an undead giveaways don't necessarily apply to all the new races <laughs> Well, and with the way it describes the vampires with that, it definitely is that interview with the vampire Dracula. Your body heals up and you look good. You look civilized as a normal human. Whereas you have the Jiangxi as well as the actual ancient uh, vampires where they were decomposing bodies. That's why they were bloated. So while they might not look like a zombie with off half their skin and muscle falling off, you know, they would still look dead. Maybe a few weeks dead, so you might get that little bit of puffiness, those red splotches as it's just setting in. Alright, um, do you have anything else you would like to add? um nope not particularly that was kind of a one of our uh more funner episodes to kind of uh go in there and and you, you know once again you taught me something uh not only about a couple of variants i have never heard of but also that you know i didn't realize it even though i probably heard it before that like, garlic was like uh, widely considered as a cleansing herb back in the back in the days so that was kind of cool but no i mean um us, anybody out there uh, taking a listen uh, help us out and go give us a five star review wherever you can let's see if we can't get in some more ear holes and if you want to catch me and Chris doing uh, some more nerdy shit go ahead and check out Tater Brain Pod that's all one word uh, YouTube channel and uh, Instagram uh, there's a bit more uh, monsters and mythos and other D&D related stuff there and uh, how, that's all I got you got anything? Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or any races or creatures that you would like to hear about sooner rather than later, um, shoot us an email at monstersandmythos, all one word, at gmail.com. I believe in the next few, we're going to look at dwarves and elves so we can put a stamp on the uh, Fae collection. And i'd like to see the basilisk uh try and get some more of those uh creatures that get you stoned and not in a good way all right yeah i'm always open for some new topics and uh yeah uh keep get in touch with us hit us up on like maybe some comment sections and send us an email you know uh, there's definitely a wide variety of D, D topics out there and you know if there's something you would want to hear sooner or later shoot us a line